You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Thrive today. It's good to have you here today. Uh, we are continuing our series called Fathom, and we're walking through the letter to the Ephesians, uh, taking a section of each chapter once a week. So we're in chapter three in our third week, and we're looking at the height and breadth and width and depth of the love of God in Jesus Christ. And today we are in the chapter where that verse is actually located, and we're in the chapter where the whole theme of fathom comes up. Now, Paul doesn't use the word fathom in the text, but it's a synonym for what he uses. He uses the word to comprehend, to actually understand. Some have used measure to be able to grasp, to apprehend, and I thought, you know, well, fathom is one of those ways. And what we're trying to fathom is something that's unfathomable, really, the love of God, the infinity of that, and how it has impacted us and made a difference. So we're reading now here in um, Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Wow. From this prayer, we're going to learn these three aspects today. Why in the world that we need to fathom God's love, what it means to fathom it, and then finally, what results when we do, okay? So why do we need to fathom God's love? What I find interesting about this prayer, by the way, is that Paul is praying for the Ephesian Christians. Do you understand? He's praying this prayer for people who already believe in Jesus Christ, who know who he is as their Savior, and he prays this, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, if you don't know, uh, in scripture, um, anyone who has a saving faith in Jesus Christ already has Jesus Christ in their heart and life. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, Paul says in the letter to 1 Corinthians. So what is he getting at here? Right, And later on in this text, he'll also say that you may be filled with the fullness of God is what he's praying for in uh, Ephesians 3, for the Ephesians. But Paul, in kind of a uh, flip of this letter, the book of Colossians, it's a very similar place to um, Ephesus. Actually, it's in the same area of Asia Minor or Turkey. Um, He says this in Colossians chapter 2, for in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's in Jesus Christ. And you have been filled in him. Do you see that? So you already have that fullness. So what is he getting at here? Every Christian has Jesus in their heart. And at the same time, Paul is saying, we need more. 
that we need to be strengthened in such a way that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith or in our inner being, he says in this text. A very fascinating passage. I studied that this week, that little phrase, the inner being or inner human or inner man. Uh, Henry Nouwen, I think, is getting a little at what is going on with what is this inner being that Paul wants us to really get it. Um, he, Henry Nouwen is a Christian author. Um, he wrote a number of great devotional books. And he stated that every Christian needs to come to terms with three big lies about your identity that we face here in um, Western civilization and American culture specifically. And these three lies are, I am what I have, I am what I do, and I am what people think of me. A lot of Christians I know believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and I believe they believe that. I have no problem in it. And yet what I see often is, though they believe consciously that he is their Lord and Savior, the implications of that haven't quite reached down into their inner being of where their identity is and who they think they are. And um, I'm glad, though, that whether I am conscious of Jesus being my Savior at the moment or not, whether I'm awake or asleep, whether I'm worrying or I'm praying, whether I'm anxious or joyful that Jesus Christ is still my Lord and Savior. It's not based on my feelings. It's not based on my apprehension of him. It's based on his grace and his apprehension and hold of me. And yet, we struggle so often with realizing the fullness of the implications of what means that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior and the love of God in Christ. And the victory that we have in our inner being, in the core of who we are, we have kind of allowed the lies to be there that I am what I have, I am what I do, and I am what people think of me. Uh, this past year with the COVID pandemic, it's been almost a year, right, that we've been really struggling with this. And what has happened is a lot of things have been shut down or stopped or we haven't been able to do the things we used to do. And boy, has the anxiety level, the depression level, the struggle, actually even hostility, I mean, outward hostility of human beings to other human beings gone way up. And I think it's tied into the fact that we have, if I can't do what I want to do, I am less of me. Do you understand? I am what I do has turned into, um, and so when I can't do those things, all of a sudden you are threatening my very existence, which is not true. Or I am what I have, and when I don't have a job, or when I am economically questioning my future, I'm wondering what's going on, I can't have all the experiences I used to accumulate and consume and do, then I have less life, less of me going on. That is not true. And um, people seem to be facing these existential threats to their lives just over the fact that we haven't been able to be and do what we've wanted to be and do during this last year. And I think it comes down to that in the inner core of their being, they still haven't figured out they are not what they do, they are not what they own, and they are not what other people think of them. Now, Paul, what's amazing to me about Paul is that pray, Paul is praying this for the Ephesian Christians here. 
and we think maybe that we've faced some very difficult times. I think that church has faced much more at the time. Paul prays fervently in this. I bend my knee. The usual way to pray a prayer in the Old Testament was with lifted hands standing up. And yet, the fervency of his petition that God would allow the Ephesian Christians to truly know to the depth of their being, to the inner being of who they are, the love of God, he actually bows on his knees to do so. And he prays this one thing. Now, there could have been a lot of other prayers he would have prayed for the Ephesians, and in fact... I'm kind of surprised he didn't, because they had faced a lot of persecution. You can read this in the book of Acts, where when he came with the gospel to Ephesus, how they faced the occult, and they faced all sorts of issues with that, as well as all the temples of the gods and goddesses of Rome and Greece, especially the temple of Artemis there in the center of it. And the people were facing persecution, and they were facing economic deprivation, and they were facing hostility and exclusion from society. He prays for none of those things in this prayer. He prays that they would know the love of God its height, depth, breadth, and width in Christ in their inner being. I think too many people today think their biggest problem is a financial one. That um, if only, you know, they could get a good job, or if only they had um, a, a better job, or more job, or they inherited money, or won the lottery, or you name it, if only when we get financially stable, then everything else will be solved. Or other people think it's a physical problem. If only I had my health back. If I only faced uh, less obstacles in this way. Or a relational problem. If I only had a soulmate. Or as a society, we might say, if only we can get these vaccines out more. If only we can turn things around. If only, as a church, we can get a few more members in. And, and uh, then we solve our problem. Paul's saying that's not your problem. Your biggest problem is an identity problem at the center of your being. That's what Paul says. And when that is solved, then other things start falling into place. So that's the why. Paul was not praying just for people who didn't know Jesus, but for people who did trust in Christ as their Savior. And the second point what happens, what does it mean to actually fathom the love of God? And uh, like I said, he's, he's, he's praying for something that's really unfathomable. <laughs> that's quite the word, isn't it? Unfathomable. But uh, he's praying uh, because he says, um, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge in this text. I don't know if you saw that. That's kind of like, what, how do you know something that goes beyond knowledge? Now, here's a possibility of what he's getting at. I I read this online uh, this week. In 1931, there was a woman named Ida Wood and her sister, Emma Wood. Um, They had lived for 24 years as recluses in the Herald Square Hotel in New York City. And in 1931, Ida was dying. And finally, nobody knew they had kind of holed up in this hotel Uh, for 24 years after having been burned by 
husbands and other situations. These two spinsters were extremely wealthy, but nobody knew. They lived actually an impoverished life behind these closed doors because all they asked from day to day, from behind the closed door to the bellhop, was for evaporated milk, crackers, coffee, bacon, and eggs. I'd kind of get tired of that, but that's all they asked for every day. It was discovered when um, Emma, the sister, cried out for help because Ida was dying. They came into the apartment and they discovered that the women had over $400,000 in stocks and bonds and a million dollars in cash. That was 1931. (laughs) I can't imagine how much that is today. Yeah, a lot. I'll even take that, right? (laughs) But uh, Ida and Emma, I think, are kind of like a lot of Christians. We have all these resources. We have the love of God in Jesus Christ. We have the wealth of being united with him through um, our baptism into death, raised to new life. We have been given all of the blessings of Christ Jesus himself in the heavenly places, according to Ephesians chapter 1. But we still live in the poverty of our thoughts with the little lies of I am what I can hold on to, I am what I uh, can do, and I am what other people think of me. And we shut ourselves off from the treasure of what God has for us in Jesus Christ. And we close ourselves off as well to try to stay safe in a scary world, and we break off any chance of actually reaching out and serving and risking, and loving, and being vulnerable, and yet we have such great wealth. It's not that they weren't wealthy objectively. It's that they were not wealthy subjectively, that they didn't understand the depth of that. And you and I, we don't need more information. God knows we don't, okay? Facts, fear, force, trying to get people to know the facts, doesn't really change anybody. The facts were there for Ida and Emma. The facts are here for us, that all the blessings of Jesus Christ are given to us in the heavenly places, that we have been chosen before the foundation of the world, that we have been bought with the greatest price of all in Jesus. All the facts are laid out. So what we know here is Paul then does not lecture the Ephesians. He prays for them. We don't need facts, fear, or force. We don't need information. What we really need and what he saw they needed was God's affirmation. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel to realize how God relates to us repeatedly, how he comes to us, how he reframes our whole identity so Paul prays for the Ephesians about what they all Ephesians what they already had know, so that it sinks down and becomes so at the core of their being that they realize it's not just an idea; it's the reality of who they are. The gospel is not something that you just start out in the Christian faith on, and now you got that down and you can move on to the better stuff. No, the gospel is 
the whole Christian life. There is. You need gospel every day. Every Christian needs to hear the gospel every day. Every Christian needs to understand and apprehend more of the gospel every day. And that's why, like what Martin Luther once wrote, he said, Here I must take counsel of the gospel. I must hearken to the gospel which teaches me not what I ought to do, for that is the proper office of the law, but what Christ Jesus, the Son of God, has done for me, to wit that he suffered and died, to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel wills me to receive this and to believe it, and this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually." And I've used that quote before. Um, I think he's getting at what Paul's saying here is we want that into the inner being of who you are and your inner identity, that you understand that you are gospel, that you are loved, and therefore you can be loving, that you are healed, therefore you can be healing to others, that you have a wholeness in Jesus Christ, a righteousness in him, not of your own. And all of these are gifts of God's grace. You can never fathom the gospel enough. And you can never have too much of it going on. And I think you can experience more of it every day in different ways, but in odd ways sometimes maybe. For example, when you encounter a difficult person, and I'm assuming you have over the last year, there have been enough people that have been struggling with their identity issues and then take it out because they feel like whatever, right? It could be in the grocery store, on the highway. It can be in your neighborhood. It can be in your family. I mean, we've all faced this. And when I reflect on that, I can kind of flip that around and go like, Lord, you know, I'm like that person. I get so caught up. I get so stubborn. I uh, am so childish. And I, um, and wow, you love me even when I'm like that. <laughs> <laughs> you never tire of being around me, and I just, wow. And all my whining and my fussing and all my self-centeredness, Lord, and you still love me. Wow, is your love deep. That's experiencing a little more of that love again. Every day, we need to fathom this, Paul says, to grasp the love of God in your heart, going beyond just knowing about it, but just cherishing it, relishing it, amazed at it. So what happens, what results when we do fathom it more? Your identity becomes not what you do, but what has been done for you. Your identity becomes not what you have, but who has you in the palm of his hand. Your identity becomes not what other people think of you, but the fact that God is the one who looks at you, smiles upon you, delights in you, has loved you with an everlasting love. Paul says it this way, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And that inner being seems to be very synonymous in this passage as well with the word heart. But in the Old Testament understanding of the word love or heart, and it's not the seat of your emotions in the Old Testament. Rather, your heart is the control center of your entire personality, your basic commitments, your hopes, your dreams, 
What you find value in, really your identity is what we're getting at here. And this does affect how you think and how you act and it does affect your emotions because you see what you value and what you treasure is what you then really emote. So if you've got a treasure, you rejoice in that treasure. When you fathom more of the love of God in Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to what lengths God has gone to for you, the fact to bring you back to himself, that he, from the highest of heavens to the depths of hell itself upon the cross, that he has gone the entire breadth to rescue you, and when you start to comprehend a little more of that with your mind, it should melt your heart, change your heart, change your whole center of being so that when you do face someone thinking negatively about you, it doesn't go to the core of your being anymore. But rather you look at them and go like, how sad. How sad that, that you're playing these games and still stuck in thinking you are what you, other people think of you. And when you do face difficulties in life, and when there are trials, you don't go like, oh my goodness, my life is totally falling apart because, no, Lord, my life is in your hands. I can't do everything I used to do. Doesn't make me less me. Because I am not what I do. I am whose I am. I am what you have done for me. I am not what I have and hold on to, but it's on, I am who holds on to me, my relationship with you. You know, know thyself. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Know thyself. It's a very uh, short, little, winsome saying that the Greeks came up with. They thought that's what life is all about. Getting to know yourself. A journey of self-discovery. Most people, that's what they're doing in the United States right now. They're trying to figure out themselves. You know, they'll say, I need to find myself. It's like, how do you find yourself? Do you understand? I still haven't figured out how to find myself. Because, like, um, do you, it, uh, because I am, no. Um, and so they think that that's the journey. It's a journey of self-discovery. No. The Bible, from the beginning of Scripture to the end, it's a plot line of God's journey towards you. The whole Old Testament and New Testament say, if you try to discover your own identity on your own to know yourself, you'll never get there. Because it's really just layer upon layer of insecurity and fear and pride and brokenness. But if you know God, if you seek his kingdom first, all these other things come to you. I don't need to know more about me. I need to know more about Jesus and his love for me. And when I know about his love for me, then I start to know me. Paul puts it this way. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Fathom that love and gain the mystery of God's grace for your life and the strength of your identity in him. That's so why I think Russell Moore in his book on the courage to stand wrote that sooner or later in the quest for meaning, 
one must grapple with the question, who are you? And usually what we mean by that question is something like, once I get beyond the expectations other people have of me, beyond the roles that I play and the jobs that I have, who am I really down at the core? It's not a bad question to ask, but it's a bad first question to ask. On its own, that question is unanswerable. Like I've said, it's just layer upon layer of insecurity, etc. First, we must learn, as did John, and he's talking about John the Baptist, to confess what we are not. John the Baptist confesses in the Gospel of John, I am not the Christ, I'm just a voice. To confess what we are not, before we can say what we are, John was learning what Elijah had learned before him. He must increase, I must decrease. Jesus, more of Jesus, less of me, then I know my true identity. Let's pray. Lord, we need to fathom uh, your love more and more. That's the one thing needed, Lord. Not <laughs> solving this little issue and that little issue. Not resolving these other things. Those things come, but seeking you first, your kingdom first, and what you say about us, Lord. That we are not what we have. We are not what we do. We are not what others think of us, but we are whose we are, yours. We are what you have done. We are how you have possessed us and held on to us and grasped us with your amazing love and grace before the foundation of the world, all the way into eternity, Lord. You are not, not uh, hiding from, I mean, you've done, done it all, Lord. Help us, Lord, not just to know it on the periphery of our lives, but in the core of our being, who we are, and to live out of that, Lord. What a difference that will make in how we respond to the negativity in this world, Lord to the personal attacks that happen, <laughs> to the economic ups and downs of our lives, that the roller coaster ride of what's going on next is not going to affect us as much because we're holding on to you and you are the steady, our refuge, our strong tower, the one that has everything in your hands, Lord, and you've got it all in your plans, nothing outside, Lord. No one is sovereign, no one is able to turn uh, <laughs> turn you away in any form from what you want to do in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that's what gets done today in us. There are people in our congregation now and in our whole um, ministry, Lord, we're one family here. And we just lift up in both grief and joy all sorts of different situations. So we rejoice today, Lord, in your goodness in the lives of many. We thank you, Lord, how you are working and bringing healing in Evelyn Cardenas's life. We pray that you continue her along that path and her witness to your goodness and glory be with her, her children, Lord, this day. Lord, we um, agonize with the family of Helen Rowenfelt as she has passed. And, we're trying to grasp, Lord, your plans in this. We're not quite sure, but we know, Lord, that she loved you. You loved her. You, you, Lord, had her in the palm of your hands all the way through her hospitalization and now in glory. We place Lloyd now into your care as well as he is hospitalized but will be moved to hospice house tomorrow. Lord, you know his condition, the fact that uh, he needs you just like we all do. We just pray, Lord, we commend him into your care. We pray for healing for 
Lloyd and Helen's children and their grandchildren and even great-grandchildren and all who have loved her, Lord. We pray that the online memorial this week would be uh, all to your glory and show your goodness that has come through her. We pray for Mission Haiti, Lord. We pray for Lafon, the field director in Mission Haiti today. We pray that you'd bless him and give him wisdom. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, provide the right path forward for the mission work that Helen started, that it would continue but even grow. Lord God, for Christopher, who will have a, another MRI or CAT scan this week to find out the t tumor in his brain, for Kai, for his mother out in California that are facing medical issues, Lord, for, um, for just uh, for Jill, who will be undergoing surgery this week. Lord, you know all of these needs. For all those who need your healing touch, for all those who are wondering what their future is, Lord, we pray first of all that they would know you, your love that goes beyond knowledge, and that they would understand and comprehend with us and all of God's people the height and depth and width and breadth of your love in Jesus Christ. Lord, we need that more than anything. And when we have that, everything gets into focus. Everybody, everything gets reframed appropriately. Lord God, um, thank you for this time. We thank you for this ministry you've given us. We are asking, we've been asking, we are begging, we are asking you as we wait on you throughout this season that has gone on longer than we anticipated. We ask for your direction and wisdom and guidance that you would open the right doors, that you would give us courage to walk through them, that we seek nothing but your will, that we don't just look to be like everything else in this world, but that we look to be like you, reflecting your goodness and mercy and truth to a world, that we would be a counter to the cultural uh, influences around us to share your goodness, that your kingdom would expand and not our own, Lord God. Lord, um, as we uh, seek you, we are thankful for all that you've done and we are going to offer both here and online our praises to you in thanksgiving and in offerings out of the first fruits of what you've given us. We can't outgive you, but we thank you for the opportunity to give and the opportunity to participate in your kingdom. All this we pray, Lord Jesus, this day in your name. Amen.